0: Welcome to this EU referendum episode of Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sanderlind and Talking Migration is supported by the Centre for Research in the Social Sciences at the University of Huddersfield. In this episode we will be focusing on the choice that the British people have to make on Thursday on whether to remain in or leave the EU. The referendum has been described as a vote on immigration as the issue has taken a prominent role in the debate. In this episode, we will be discussing in what ways immigration has been debated and how immigration might change in the case of Brexit. To begin with, I talked to Dr Andy Mycock at the University of Huddersfield, who has written extensively on the issue of identity, citizenship and evolution in the UK. I asked Andy what role identity and immigration has played in the referendum.
1: Well, the EU referendum debate, uh, you know, its core features have been framed around the economic implications of leaving or remaining part of the European Union and increasingly the role of immigration. I think immigration plays a cross into those key arguments about culture and identity, which have, have driven a sizable element of British politics over the last 20 years or so. The idea of identity politics has become very much central to the notion of framing political narratives And I think in that sense that what it does, it highlights the tensions between the nation state and what the European Union is and is becoming a supranational framework, which is quasi-federal. In that sense, it's interesting because the United Kingdom itself, of course, is a multinational state. And in that sense, is quasi-federal itself. It's recently gone through the experience of the Scottish independence referendum, which highlights the extent to which the UK itself is fragile and could break apart. And in that sense, you know, cultural identity has really begun to show and frame in many ways the boundaries of inclusion and exclusion, and the way in which identity particularly is to underpin notions of collectivity and community. To put it bluntly, it is about the extent to which people in the United Kingdom feel European. And in many ways, that's the interesting element about immigration is, is that Debates about immigration in the United Kingdom traditionally have been framed in the context of post war immigration from the former empire, from the Commonwealth, but have increasingly been framed in terms of Europeanness. And that's particularly in response to the numbers of uh, Eastern European Europe migrants, particularly that have come to the United Kingdom over the past decade or so. I think what's changed the tenor and the tone of the debate, though, has been the Syrian refugee crisis. And that's raised questions which have already been there within the political debate about the extent to which the United Kingdom is a secular society in which it has a fundamental Christian underpinning, Judeo-Christian underpinning of its religious institutional frameworks. But more than that, there is a sense of commonness, of Britishness. And in many ways, this has been the leading debate over the last couple of weeks, the idea to which immigration is in some ways reinforcing a sense of common Britishness or is indeed undermining it. And here I think it is interesting that this debate about immigration within European re- referendum and the extent to which it compromises a sense of common British culture and identity very much links the past with the present, the extent to which Britain has been exceptional in some ways, and that Britishness is either framed by a sense of Europeanness or is framed against in opposition to Europeanness. And therein is the hub of the debate about immigration. In context of cultural identity is, well, what is the future of Britishness itself? And in many ways, this frames itself back to the idea, really, that Britishness is a composite identity which is formed by various nations and cultures and identities. And I think, in many ways, what we're seeing here is actually is a debate as much about what it is to be British in the 21st century as it is about what it is to be European.
0: Hmm. Uh- and it's interesting, this idea about Britishness uh, sort of versus the Euro, um, what it means to be European because, as you mentioned, there's just been the referendum in Scotland and then there was a similar debate, I guess, what it means to be British within Britain, so not against anything but kind of against an internal split. So it's it's quite interesting that these two referendums have come quite close to each other. And, and how do you think the other part... Um, of the identity and uh, perhaps some extent immigration debate the part that is about english identity and scottish identity welsh identity how do you think that also plays a part perhaps in the eu referendum
1: well of course european the european referendum should i say is is about sovereignty in many senses and this sovereignty has been mainly framed at a UK level. But of course, devolution and the way in which the United Kingdom itself has remodelled itself over the last 20 years or so, has meant that sovereignty is also being realised at a sub-state national level, and particularly in Scotland, Wales, and in Northern Ireland. In many ways, it highlights the fact that when we're talking about British sovereignty, for many people, they're referring it back to English sovereignty. And you know, there's a lot of work that's been done by people like, such as Ben Wellings and Mike Kenny, which argues that in many ways that British Euroscepticism actually is a manifestation of English Euroscepticism, which is slowly but surely revealing itself. That would suggest, then, that there is a sense of Scottish, Welsh and Northern Irish Euroscepticism, which is in somehow different and distinct. And there is evidence to suggest that that's true. You know, if we look at England, you know, the distinction of immigration and the way in which it plays within the sense of, of identity. Well, England plays differently than the rest of the country because of the size of England, the fact that there is a greater population, a greater land mass. And in many ways, that England itself has tended to other itself, not against Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, but against Europe. So in many ways, Britishness and Englishness in terms of Euroscepticism have become one and the same. But I think more than that, that there is this sense of scale of immigration and the fact that England has been the main repository of those migrants coming to the United Kingdom. The Oxford University Migration Observatory's work, Observatory's work in 2014 highlighted that England's reception, the proportion of people, foreign people born in England is appreciably higher than the rest of the UK. It's double the size of those in Scotland. And therefore, that the density and the complexity of multiculturalism and immigration has had a greater impact on English society. If we look at what happens in Scotland, well, the rhetoric of many of the politicians there would appear to be more pro-immigration. And that, in many ways, is because the Scottish economy does need migrants to a greater extent than the rest of the United Kingdom. But it's also the way in which Scottish nationalism has been framed itself, very much in opposition to this Anglo-British state. And that's been seen in the way in which the tone about immigration and the way in which rhetoric has been used in Scotland has tended to frame migrants as our migrants, that they're Scottish, not British. And that, in many ways, highlights that there is a political attempt to try and distinguish in some ways the fact that England is somehow more xenophobic, is more anti-immigration in many ways, and that it is different. But we see those tones in Wales as well, and particularly in South Wales, in areas where we've seen widespread de where those traditional heavy industries, coal, steel production, etc., have been slowly but surely disappeared. And we've seen migrants moving into those areas. Again, we've seen that both the United Kingdom Independence Party have done very well and that Vote Leave is doing very well in the current polling in South Wales. So that would suggest that there is a sense in which Wales and Welsh nationalism does have a Eurosceptic element as well. And again, if we look at Northern Ireland, immigrants there have been welcomed since 2004, that the peace process has seen Northern Ireland open itself to the world more. But at the same time, that migrants have found themselves caught up in the troubles there, in the sectarian binary, and there's been a number of attacks on migrant communities. So we can say there that there is an issue about Europe itself. And it is interesting that with the exception of Sinn Féin, most of the political parties in Europe in Northern Ireland are in some ways Eurosceptic. So I think that what we can say is is that Euroscepticism is a common British phenomenon. It draws on many similar or shared historical tropes, but that it does manifest itself differently in the four parts of the United Kingdom. And that is many ways is the fact that we are seeing, because of devolution, very distinct political cultures, which means that the whole debate about Europe and immigration is in some ways dischanged and is moderated by the fact of the different national conditions.
0: And just going back to uh, to the case of Scotland because like you said Scottish nationalism often portrayed as uh, both pro-immigration and pro-Europe uh, and so to what extent do you think that's um, a result of a different culture uh, or political culture and to what extent is a result of just lower immigration numbers uh, and how well do you think that sort of image of Scottish nationalism actually Fits with the attitudes of uh, amongst the Scottish.
1: Well, I think there is the, the, there is justification in both cases. The fact that Scotland simply has less migrants has meant that immigration has had less of an impact on Scottish society. You know, particularly outside of the two main cities of, of Edinburgh and Glasgow. But also the fact that you know that the. the Scottish nationalist movement, and particularly the Scottish National Party, have invested a huge amount of political capital in constructing a rhetoric which suggests that Scottish nationalism is somehow inclusive and more civic than other nationalisms within the United Kingdom, particularly with English nationalism, and therefore that its attitude towards migrants is far more inclusive and welcoming, that Scottishness has a malleability and an inclusiveness which implicitly suggests that English nationalism hasn't. The problem is, really, is that when you actually look at the data, and particularly the data that comes from the British social attitude studies, it indicates actually that the Scots aren't that different than the English in many ways in terms of their attitudes towards immigration. And indeed, many of those concerns are framed, in a sense, about an impact on the Scottish nation rather than Britain more widely. And in many ways, that's to be expected. And I think in many ways that the rhetoric and the reality of Scottish nationalism Well, there is a deep distinction between the two, and also that there's a theoretical exceptionalism here that seems to suggest that Scottish nationalism is different than any other nationalism across Europe, and that it doesn't have an ethnic element. And of course, we know that all modern 21st century nationalisms are in many ways a conflation or a mixture of ethnic and civic dynamics. There is no suggestion that Scottish nationalism could not in many ways operate in the same way as English nationalism or other European nationalisms in terms of immigration if we saw greater immigration to Scotland. So in many ways, there is a sense in which there's a lack of realism among some Scottish nationalists towards the extent to which Scottish nationalism contains the same potential to be xenophobic or Eurosceptic as are the nationalisms across Europe.
0: Uh, just to finish then, just going back to um, to this idea that you just mentioned about uh, national identities and the exclu- inclusiveness of them and the idea of uh, Britishness as the uh, perhaps the main identity positioned against uh, European identity in the eu referendum so uh, in the case of brexit. Uh, do you think that perhaps that would strengthen a common British identity? And if, in that case, if that could be a more inclusive um, identity, or what would the kind of dynamics, do you think, be in the case of Brexit in terms of Britishness, Englishness, Scottishness, um, you know, Northern Ireland, Wales, and how, so this is a rather big question, <laughs> and, um, mm. and, and, you know, and how would that play a part in... In, in sort of including including migrants? Um,
1: mm. I, th- I think fundamentally that a Brexit would reorder and reconstitute identity politics in the United Kingdom in such a profound way that it would put the British state once again under the spotlight, the extent to which a, a common sense of Britishness would survive Brexit, I, I think is, is, is highly questionable. And there are a number of reasons for that. In the main, we're seeing that this sense of Brexit in Britishness that has been articulated by the leading figures such as Michael Gove, Boris Johnson, etc., is very much an Anglo-British identity. It doesn't play particularly well outside of England and doesn't resonate with many of those outside of England. One of the critical issues here, of course, is that if Scotland does vote to remain within the the European Union and England votes against it, it's highly likely that those tensions will be politicised, particularly by the Scottish National Party, and they will use that very much to agitate for a second referendum. I think also in Wales, though, we will see that there, there is a change there. And I think there will be questions asked in Wales about the extent to which Wales has benefited within the European Union and in which in some ways that the English nature of British Euroscepticism has in some ways distorted a sense of Welsh civic nationalism. Fundamentally, I think the big question, the one which is often overlooked by those both positing to leave the European Union and remain, is the implications of the impact on Northern Ireland. multiple areas in which the European Union has underpinned the Northern Irish peace process, and it's highly likely that they would come under extreme duress if there was a Brexit. And I think in many ways that there is a need to take a more holistic picture about the implications of Brexit across the United Kingdom, rather than focusing really on the hot spots within England. Interestingly enough, the one thing that I think that we will see, stimulated to a greater extent, would be a debate about well, what is England's nationalism and how does English nationalism play as opposed to British nationalism? And here there are some interesting discussions about the sense of an Anglosphere, that the Englishness itself is still tied in some ways to a post-imperial framework, a connection across the English-speaking world, but particularly with those white dominion settler societies which historically have been tied to a sense of British imperialism. And in many ways, the rhetoric of those that have been agitating for Brexit has been very much bound in this sense of a Greater Britain that emerged in the 19th century. Whether we'll see a Greater England is the real interesting question here. And I think that in many ways, that those who are agitating for Brexit or are promoting a sense of Anglo-Britishness can easily convert that into a sense of exclusive English nationalism. If we do see that emerge, then I think the likelihood that the United Kingdom will be able to sustain itself over the next 20-30 years is highly unlikely.
0: Annie Cook has recently contributed to an edited book uh, on Euroscepticism in the UK, which you can find links to on our website talkingmigration.com. So if the British do you decide to leave the EU, it will be seen largely as a plea from voters to reduce migration to the UK. But is this going to happen? And what are the likely scenarios in the case of Brexit? To answer these questions, I talked to Madeleine Sumption, who is director of the Migration Observatory in Oxford. The Migration Observatory has carried out extensive analysis on how migration will be affected by the UK leaving the EU, which you can also find links to on our website. I started by asking Madeleine who is currently migrating to the UK from the EU and why they are coming.
2: The most significant country of origin for migration from Europe to the UK at the moment is is Poland. That's the place where we have the, by some distance, the the highest number of people who were born in EU countries. But there is actually a real mix of people from different member states, both um, the old member states that have been part of the EU for some time, and the ones that joined in two thousand and four or later. Uh, So traditionally, if we we look at the population of people who are here from uh, EU countries, uh, Ireland and Germany, uh, alongside Poland, are very significant. Recently, there's been a bit of a shift. um, And we're seeing larger numbers of people coming from Spain, Italy and Portugal, where there's been quite high unemployment, um, and also from Romania, which, of course, only recently joined the EU. Um, And in terms of why they're coming um the main motivation is work there is uh, there's a survey which a government run survey that asks people their reason for migration uh, when a sample of people when they show up at the border and uh, by far the, the most common response is is work and you have in smaller numbers coming for uh, other reasons like to study or to join family members
0: okay and if there was a case of Brexit, so if, there was, if if the UK left the EU, what sort of different scenarios do you think we might see in terms of future migration from the EU?
2: This has been probably one of the biggest questions in the EU referendum debate, and the problem from an analytical perspective is it's actually surprisingly difficult to to predict. And that's both because migra- you know, migration itself is very difficult to forecast, but also we simply don't know what the policies would be that would apply to EU citizens after Brexit. Uh, there are different scenarios um, that range from almost no change to very significant change. Um, So on the one hand, if the UK were to join the European economic area, like Norway, for example, it uh, might still have to implement free movement in order to access the single market. And in that case, we wouldn't really expect to see a significant change at all. On the other hand, um, if free movement came to an end and there were significant new restrictions on, on EU migration, uh, then you could have a fundamental uh, change in the, the the shape of the migration flows here. Um, <clears throat> there is, I mean, the, the big question is, okay, if free movement does come to an end, um, what would these new policies look like? Um, probably the most restrictive scenario would be to say that we just apply the current rules that non-EU citizens face to EU citizens, Um, Now, as I mentioned earlier, most people coming from the EU are coming for work. So if you look at the work visa restrictions, they would be particularly important. And currently, a majority of EU citizens who are in the UK aren't in the kinds of jobs that would qualify for work visas. That said, there are some scenarios in the middle where you would have uh, slightly more generous or you know, less restrictive policies towards EU citizens. Actually, some um, some of the proponents of leaving the EU have suggested that um, ending free movement would enable a more more generous policy towards some of the, the middle-skilled people um, from outside of the EU who have faced more restrictive immigration policies over the last five years or so. Um, There's also been a big discussion about this uh, Australian-style points-based system, which um, has played a big role in the debate, although in some respects it's a bit of a red herring because it's – the system in Australia, you know, it's often cited as something that is designed to reduce migration to the UK – Uh, points-based systems like the one in Australia generally let people in without a job offer and have traditionally been designed to increase immigration. So I think, you know, the biggest... I think the takeaway point is here is we don't know exactly what the policies will be. Uh, We can't guarantee that they'll be exactly the same ones that apply to non-EU citizens. Uh, So there's a huge range of different scenarios which would lead to higher or lower levels of immigration.
0: Mm. In terms of... um, You mentioned that... um the current eu migrants might not be able to get the work visas because they don't have the they're not in those sorts of um, professions so is that because they're mainly in low-skilled jobs
2: um yes the the current system that applies to non-eu citizens requires people to be in a graduate uh, a job that's classified by the government as a graduate position and also earn a certain amount. Um, now, that if you look at the workforce as a whole, um, only about a quarter of jobs of people um, working as employees in the UK of any nationality, only about a quarter of them would be in jobs that that meet that requirement. Um, so, And then if you look specifically at EU citizens, they are somewhat more likely to be working in, in low-skilled jobs. Many of the people who come here, even if they're relatively highly educated, Um, have tended to be in lower wage positions like hospitality or food processing and so forth
0: right and um, uh, just to follow up a bit on the Australian sort of point system uh, we also hear that the UK actually already has a point system uh, for uh, non-EU migrants could you just say a little bit about that so how does that work
2: Yes. So we do Well, we have a system that we call a point space system, although it's actually quite different from other point systems around the world. In other countries, the purpose of of the points is that essentially you you rate people's uh, characteristics. So, for example, how much education they have, um, what level of language proficiency they have, maybe their work experience. Uh, you rank them and you assign points to them. And then the people with the highest number of points uh, get to immigrate or at least get to apply for a visa. Now, one of the reasons for using point systems is it provides some flexibility about how someone can meet the criteria. So I might be able to say, OK, you know, I have very good language ability and that makes up for the fact that I don't have very high levels of education or something like that. Um, the the system that we currently have for non-EU citizens in the UK is not a point system in that sense in that even though points are awarded, There's no flexibility in how to meet the criteria. You have to meet all of the criteria within your particular group. So really here, the point system is just a way of organizing the information about how to qualify. That said, uh, there was a point system that you could describe as an Australian style one that was um, uh, introduced under the previous Labour government that did exactly what Australia does. So they they classified people based on their characteristics and then they were able to come to the UK without a job offer. And uh, in the last parliament, the the coalition government closed down that part of the immigration system essentially because when they closed it, they cited concerns that people were coming without a job offer and they actually weren't able to find uh, skilled work or many of them were working in low skilled positions or were unemployed because they didn't have a position lined up and they hadn't been pre-screened, as it were, by, by employers in the way that uh, the people coming through the normal uh, employer-based part of the immigration system would be.
0: Right. So in terms of sort of moving away from just the, the UK scene, so what do you think, obviously, like you, you said, I understand it's very difficult to to predict, but how do you think the wider migration patterns within the EU, how might they be affected by Brexit? So would people who, if it was much more restrictive to come to the UK, would people move more to other European states or do you think, how do you think that would be affected?
2: Well, first of all, it would depend on the policies that that were in place in the UK afterwards um and you know and the crucial question whether the policies actually change in a scenario where we join the European economic area and keep free movement um then it would basically be business as usual um if there was a, a change in policies and they became significantly more restrictive then um i i think it would be expected to change migration patterns across europe the uk has been in absolute terms a you know major destination um Receiving larger numbers than most other countries, somewhat similar to to Germany, um, but I think it would raise the question: Would would people who wanted to move go elsewhere? Would they go to Germany, which is the other top destination? Uh, would they go to Ireland, which is an alternative English speaking destination? Uh, would they go to some of the other relatively popular uh, destinations like Norway or Switzerland, for example? Um, I think you know there are you can make plausible stories about how people would. Change their their migration uh, decision making. In practice, it's extremely difficult to to predict. And most of the past attempts to predict how particular events would, you know, such as, for example, the enlargement of the European Union would affect migration flows, have not been particularly successful. Just because. People's decisions to move depend on so many different factors that themselves are difficult to to forecast. um, That it's it's essentially we just don't really have the analytical tools to do it.
0: Mm. And what might happen to the EU migrants who are already living in in the UK? Um,
2: That's a very good question, and it's it's one. I mean, this is essentially it's it's partly a political question and partly a legal question, and it wouldn't. The exact status of people who've already moved wouldn't be fully resolved until after a vote to leave, um, and it may depend to some extent on what the agreement is that the UK would negotiate with the EU um, as part of its its exit from the union. Um, that's you know there are a few things we can say. Firstly, uh, many people who are already living in the UK from EU countries are actually eligible for permanent residence. So majority of, of people born in EU countries have been here for more than five years and so would be able to apply for, for permanent residence. It's something that not that many people actually do currently because they don't need to. Um, but if they if they did need to, then that option would be open to them. For people who've been here for less time, there are some remaining questions, but um, I think that to the extent there's a consensus, it's that they would get to stay. Um, that's because, well, from a political perspective, politicians um, on both sides of the debate have said that people already here would would not be required to leave. Um, and... Many lawyers also argued that it would actually be quite hard to remove people's rights from a legal perspective. Generally, when you have new changes introduced in the immigration system, they only apply to people who are newly arriving because the previous people are said to have had a reasonable expectation of a certain set of rules applying to them. Uh, that said, there would there would be some questions about certain groups um, particularly people who arrived very recently, um, perhaps even people who arrived after a referendum vote, but before the actual new policies were implemented. Um, And then there are also questions about people who become unemployed for uh for long periods or who have absences from the country because that can um that that can make you lose your your residence rights um so these things again would be would need to be fully resolved after uh, a vote to leave and might depend on what the UK agrees with the EU
0: Right, so uh, just last uh, questions about um, well, what, what really the main debate in the rest of the EU has been about uh, about refugees and asylum seekers, uh, and in the UK in particular, the, the discussions um, are centred around uh, the situation in Calais. So, how do you think that the UK, um, uh, well, how how would asylum patterns change if the UK, um, Brexited, and um, how might the situation in in Calais uh, be affected?
2: This, again, is an area where it's difficult to say 100% what would happen, but it is one of the areas where we would expect there to be less change as a result of Brexit. Um, The reason for that being that, well, so the UK does participate in the the Dublin regulation, which is um, a, a set of rules designed to enable countries to send back asylum seekers um, if they have or if they have first been in another EU country. Um, but the numbers of people involved in that system in the UK are relatively small compared to our total asylum applications. Um, now, the, one of the big things that affects asylum applications is how easy it is for people to get to the country to make an application. It's not possible to apply for asylum from the outside. So people have to find a way to get here in order to lodge their claim. Now, um, the fact that the UK doesn't participate in uh, the Schengen borderless travel zone um, has been quite important for that, um, because it is very hard for people to to arrive in the UK and make that claim. Um, So I think in the long run, one of the questions about asylum applications in the UK and whether they would change as a result of Brexit, is the question you have to ask is, will it become easier to get here? Um, there have been a number of different policies that the UK introduced 10 or 15 years ago when there were very high numbers of, of asylum claims that were designed to make it more difficult to get here. Uh, one of them was the uh, what's called the juxtaposed controls in, uh, in Calais, so the fact that people have their passports checked. Uh, on the french side of the border rather than waiting uh, to get to the uk but there were a number of other policies including uh, penalties for uh, transport operators who um uh, who may be found bringing people over um and so it's 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 diff- you know th- it's very difficult to say exactly what shapes these these numbers um there has been some people have argued that the UK would no longer be allowed to have juxtaposed controls in Calais if they would leave the EU. Now, that agreement was with the French government and it doesn't require membership of the European Union in order to happen. Um, So I think it's quite speculative to say that we would no longer be able to do that if we weren't part of the, the European Union. There are many scenarios in which we could. Of course, you, know, you can also um, conjure up scenarios in which there's a breakdown in relations and the French no longer agree to to do it. But I, I think you know that's essentially entering a realm of speculation that uh, is probably not particularly useful.
0: To find out more about this EU referendum special episode and to listen to previous episodes, please visit our website, talkingmigration.com. That was all for this time. Thank you for listening.